0: this is Jessica Brown and this is the DEI Perspective. Today we're talking about paving the way for minorities in law enforcement. Today I have with me Sergeant Karen Brisby who was born in Detroit, Michigan and was raised here in Port Huron. She attended Port Huron schools and graduated from Port Huron High. She is also an alumnus of SC4 receiving two associate degrees, one in applied arts and science, criminal justice, and one in general education. She started her law enforcement career as a cadet with the Port Huron Police Department in 1988. Her initial goal was to work in corrections. She attended and graduated from the Macomb Police Academy and became a Port Huron police officer in November of 1991. Officer Karen Thomas at the time became Port Huron's first black female police officer. And over the course 30 years, Sergeant Brisby has had a very decorated career. She started out on road patrol, but also specialized in the role of evidence technician, field training supervisor, crisis negotiator supervisor, cadet program supervisor. Sergeant Brisby also served as a DARE officer for three years, and in 2008, she was promoted to the rank of detective and served as a criminal sexual conduct detective for 10 years, And in 2018, Detective Brisby was promoted to Sergeant Brisby. I also have with me Mr. Joseph Moncrief, who was born and raised in the South Park neighborhood of Port Huron, Michigan. He attended Port Huron schools and graduated from Port Huron High. And after graduating high school, Mr. Moncrief joined the United States Navy. He served for four years before being honorably discharged. After leaving the armed forces, Mr. Moncrief returned to Port Huron and began working at Mueller Brass. Following his job at the Brass Company, he took up a position working for the State of Michigan Liquor Control Commission in Pontiac, Michigan. Looking for work closer to home, Joe applied for a job with the Port Huron Police Department. He was given the opportunity to go to the police academy and became Port Huron's first black male police officer on February 14th of 1968. Mr. Moncrief served in the police department for 25 years before retiring in December of 1993. After retirement, he went on to serve as the supervisor of security at St. Joseph Mercy Hospital, currently Lake Huron Medical Center for seven years. Mr. Moncrief has always been very well respected in the community. His presence created a more comfortable atmosphere between and for the police department and the community from Port Huron Southside. His professional and approachable personality was much appreciated. Mr. Moncrief currently opened the door in Port Huron for other minorities to have a role in the Port Huron Police Department. It is an honor to have you both with me today, and it's so great to have you. Now, I'm going to start off just jumping right into it. What led you into pursuing a career in law enforcement, Sergeant Brisby?
1: Well, people always laugh at me when I tell this story, but it started when I was... A kid. I was um, at home and my parents were gone, but there was a a neighbor that came into the garage at our house, and um, he was leaving out of the garage with the lawnmower, and I walked out the door and I saw him with the lawnmower, and he's like, "Oh, your dad said I could um, borrow it." I'm like, "Oh, okay," and uh, come to find out, he was stealing (laughs) the lawnmower, (laughs) and so when my when my parents got home and I told them what happened I got in trouble for it and I'm like well this is not fair well, I, you know I'm a kid and right. I didn't I couldn't stop him from stealing the lawnmower he said you could uh, you told him he could use it and so that point on I knew I wanted to advocate for people and I didn't know how but it led me to
0: that's awesome. Integrity at that young age. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of kids need to listen to that. Uh, Mr. Moncrief, what led you uh,
2: into this career in law enforcement? Well, I had a job that I like, and I took the job because they promised me the job was at the Michigan State Liquor Control in Pontiac. And the area, the area representative for the liquor control told me that if I took the job for six months, they would transfer me closer to Port Huron, to a liquor store closer to Port Huron. Maybe one in Pont, uh, Mount Clemens, or they had one in Port Huron. So I said, okay, I, I'll try it for six months. Six months changed to a year, Then the year changed to a year and a half, and I'm still commuting back and forth. And I kept asking the area rep, I says, when do you, when am I going to get closer to Port Huron? I say, this highway is killing me. Mm-hmm. He said, well, none of the people in Mount Clemens want to transfer to the liquor store in Pontiac. You know, a lot of them pass by that store coming to Mount Clemens or to Port Huron. They don't want to work in that store because it was a busy store and it was a lot of work. I mean, you're putting up orders for... All the bars and restaurants, any established business to sell alcohol by the bottle or by the glass. It was a lot of work, and they didn't want to work that hard, apparently. So they would go to a smaller store where there was only like four or five uh, employees making the same money as a big store like in Pontiac. And then you come to Port Huron, there was even a smaller state liquor store where they only had like two or three people working, making the same money. So the work was a lot easier, and so they didn't want to go to, to the big store. So I said, well, i got to find something closer to home. And so I started looking. And then I was told to go to the Edison, Detroit Edison, because they were hiring. And so they told me who to talk to at the Edison, and I went there. And They weren't integrated at Edison at that time. Okay. And they had sent a man, a black man, to get a physical. And they told me that if he passed the physical, they were going to hire him. And they asked me if I knew him. I said, it happened to be one of my classmates when I graduated. I said, yeah, he's a good man. He'll do a good job for you. It was Earl Shoulders, by the way. That was his name. And so Earl passed the physical, and they hired him. And then they uh, told me to go to the city because they were looking for people. So I went to the city and told them my story. I had a job, but I didn't like the commute. So they said, we're looking for people for the fire department and for the police department. Had you thought about either one of those? I said, no, I just want a job closer, you know, to Port Huron. I said, I, garbage truck, anything. I just, I'm just tired of that highway. And so... They said, well, if you had to choose between the police and fire department, what what department would you want? I said, I don't know. I hadn't considered either one. I said, but probably police. Yeah, I think that would be more interesting. And so they gave me the test for the the entrance exam to become a police officer. And I passed it. And there you go. They hired me.
0: Wow, some great history there. That's where the paving the way started. So being the first African-American police officer, what was your job
2: experiences back then? In 1968, being the first, I was proud to be given the opportunity. And as the days went by, I realized that I wasn't welcome. Some of the officers that I had to work with and some of them let me know. They did not want to work with me, and they did not even know me, and I did not even know them. So as the days and months went by, I realized that I had a job and not a career, because they didn't even put in the paper that they had hired a, a black officer. So I had one experience where I went to the door and the lady wouldn't even she had called the police, and I went to the door. She was in there and wouldn't come to the door because I think she think I was impersonating a police officer or something because there was nothing in the paper or nothing. So they didn't, the citizens of Port Huron didn't know they had hired a black police officer until they saw me on the road. And I realized early on that I wasn't welcome. Not by the majority, but by uh, you officers that let it be known that they didn't want to work with me. And the supervisors who assigned areas for you to patrol and, uh, and partners that you would be working with, they knew who these officers were who didn't want to work with me. And they would always put me with one or the other during my probationary time. So I fought the supervisors as much as I did officers who were, who were, I don't want to call them mean, but they were prejudiced. Not the majority, but mm-hmm. the few. I would say uh, 90% of them that I got along well with, I didn't get to work with them too much. And I would have loved to work with them. But the supervisor would always put me with the two or three that, you know, so I wouldn't make my probation, I believe because you're on probation for, what, 90 days or something like that before you're in the union, I uh, it wasn't easy.
0: It was wow, I can only imagine. Now we're talking about 1968 and Sergeant Brisby up until like 1991. Can you share what your experience has been?
1: So, of course, our our experience are different because mm-hmm. when I came in, I actually started with the city in 1988 as a cadet. And I was attending college here at the time, and um, one of my classes was a field observation class. And so I had the opportunity to go and ride with the officers um, for whatever number of hours. And the captain at the time, Captain Wagner, he came to me. He's like, Hey, I got a cadet position open. If you want it, it's yours. And I'm like, Oh, let me, yeah, let me try this. And then Two and a half years later, then um, I was hired as a Port Huron police officer. And I think Mr. Moncrief was there for about a year or two after I started as an officer on the road. But my experience was they just wanted to know that you could do the job. Mm -hmm. You know, being a female, you needed to go out there and be able to do the job. That was my experience.
0: Yeah, so that gender equity piece mm-hmm. of can you really do it because you're a woman, you know. So it's very interesting, even with the generational gaps, the time in history, you still pave the way for each area within these times.
2: And then also, um, back in, in, in the early years, in 68, uh, they policed neighborhoods differently, too. In the black neighborhoods, they looked the other way when they saw something It's okay as long as you keep it down here, but don't go north of Grizzle and try that. You go to jail. You know, there were places of houses that were operating and whatnot. And the police ignored it and wouldn't say nothing about it. As long as you keep it down here, it's fine. And uh, in the, uh, like Knoxville, where they play ball after a game, they would, uh, the ball players would uh, get their. A beer, case of beer, under the tree, and they pop cans, drink beer, talking, discussing the game. And I go by and I say, "Hey, you can't have open alcohol in, you know, in this park." Well, the other officers don't say nothing. I say because they don't care. It's
1: true. I say you can't do that in Pine
2: Grove Park. You can't do it in Memorial Park. Why? What makes you think you can do it here? Because they don't say nothing. They don't. They don't care. I said, well, you pour it out. Or you're gonna get a, you know, get charged with, you know, having open intoxicant in public place, you know, it was, it was, it was different.
0: Sure was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Karen, um, Sergeant Brisby, you've worked with the crisis negotiation, and we know that uh, there is a partnership with community health. Um, can you give us some information on what that partnership looks like right now?
1: Sure. Uh, we meet with them. We have a we There's a February training. So um, the month of February, we have a bulk of our training in a week's time. And community mental health started coming in several years ago and training us on mental health mm-hmm. And uh, we've recently gone through a couple eight-hour courses with them. So at, at this point, um, monthly, we have members from um, community mental health, they call it their mobile crisis unit. We have members that come in monthly and to each briefing. And we meet with them. And so if there are conversations that we need to have about people that we're coming in contact with or. Um, Things that might change with them, so we're we're on the same page. You know, if we're if we're out on the road and, and we need their assistance with someone, immediately we can we can contact the mobile crisis unit, um, and they'll send their representatives out. Um, so it it helps us in dealing with um, people that we might not have the tools per se to deal with, but we can reach out to somebody that does.
0: And I think that is so important. I know many times you'll hear within the community or even when we talk among our students, that community mental health piece is so critical in ensuring that there's resources available uh, because you don't know what a person may need or what they're going through. And I think that that needs to be more of the conversation in all of our professions. So I do appreciate that that partnership exists. It's so needed. Mr. Moncrief, I'm sure there is a difference in our generation of policing now, Um when you began versus what you see now. Do you have any suggestions on how the community and police can continue to bridge the gap and come together?
2: Bridging the gap. I guess if you would uh, talk to some of the young people and they would listen to you, and if you would give them some advice on how to conduct themselves and how you know have a hard work ethic, you know, if, if they would listen. Goals and work hard to try to reach those goals, and honesty and respect would take them a long way.
0: I think you said a, quite a few key things with regarding um, when you mentioned when I mentioned about the generational piece. Many times in in diversity and equity and inclusion, we have these conversations about the generational gap and. Um, I hear, you know, what, what can they tell me they don't understand? It was back in the day. This is something new. Um, and I think that that's you said some key things. One is, first, we need to respect each other and understand that even with the young and older generation, there's so much that we can add to each other, um, so much great, rich perspective, and that we need to communicate and have that respect. Um, Sergeant Brisby, would you like to add to that?
1: Sure. When you, d- he said... Um respect you know and from the police department perspective at this point community service is huge you know so those generational gaps um, when you're working people see law enforcement as um, the enforcement piece but there's so much more to it than that when they're out on, on the road you know they're not they're not expected to ride around or drive around enforcing all the time Community service, interact with your community, Mm -hmm. you know. So that's, I think, building relationships wherever you are is so important. So get out there and build those relationships with the people in your community. You see them throwing around a football, you know, get out. You see somebody maybe taking groceries in, taking their trash in. Get out and help them or, you know, just interact with them. So those things and then the community events, getting out and being part of those community events and transparency I think is also very mm-hmm. important. One of the groups that we have right now is is the um, Chiefs Resource Champions, and we meet quarterly, and it's with leaders from different agencies within the community, and so they have an opportunity to come in and to see how we do, what we do, and why we mm-hmm. do it, you know? So it's, they have that understanding um, versus you see something on the surface and you don't know really all the intricate working parts mm-hmm. where now you have that you know and then and vice versa you know if, if they have questions or they see something um, that could be done better maybe or don't understand why it's being done then they can we've built those relationships so I think that's important.
0: That is I think you said a couple of things about the transparent transparency and building relationships that transparency within the community is huge i mean i've seen um even videos when you have your law enforcement you see them playing basketball with the younger people i mean you're coming to where they are and Mm -hmm. then that creates a connection with the connection it creates trust and at the end of the day our law enforcement are human beings they are Mm -hmm. touchable you have to understand, like like you said, your community. How can we be engaged? Can we bring donuts to the station? Can we have conversation? Those simple things that we take for granted is a huge impact to building the community and so important. Yes. And so my question for either of you, how do we continue to build this trust with the community? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but how can we really be consistent about building the trust within our law enforcement?
1: I, I think transparency is huge. Yeah. You know, you, you have to, we're, we're serving the community, you know, so we have programs, um, citizen ride-along programs. We have um, citizen police academies, you know, so again, so they, uh, they understand and th- those relationships are built. So if there's a question, they, they're comfortable coming to ask why this happened or why this didn't happen, or, you know, and then if they have a complaint, there's a complaint. <laughs> process, you know, that they can also fill out or go through. So all those things together, I think, help.
0: Yeah, I think it will help immensely because, you know, I think the the key component here is building the trust. And understanding that education needs to take place. I mean, many times we talk about having panel discussions where you're talking about different perspectives, especially with DEI. When you're talking about racial inequality, social injustice, events that come up that you need to talk about it. We're not trying to hide. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to uh, water down these events that change people's lives, but that we need to understand each other's perspective. Because you take that perspective into your work. Yes. And it does dictate how you conduct decisions on a day-to-day basis. So I think the key thing also is communicate. Understand that whether it's law enforcement, whether it's your teachers, your educators, those that are in leadership roles being able to hear what is happening within the community so that we can build policies mm-hmm. and systems that can help our community. Mm-hmm. And so because we have the next generation that's coming forth and they are our next leaders, we want to make sure that they're mentally well and that they have and are, have the ability to share their concerns. So is there any advice or feedback that you would give our young people that are going through things? I mean, we do have our African-American population who have experienced different level of racism. Um, we have all of our children that are dealing with things in our schools. Uh, We are dealing with bullying. We're just dealing with stress and anxiety. Is there any words of encouragement that you would have for our children of today?
2: I think a change of environment would help kids today because when you see uh, young men walking around with their pants down way below their waist, showing their underwear, you might want to criticize that kid because he's embarrassing, you know. But if you would get to know that kid and see where he came from, you could understand why he does some of the things that he does. If you went to that home that he came out of and lived in his environment for a while, you can understand maybe why he's that way. So if you don't really get to... To, to know a kid uh, and where the kid's coming from, you can't really help him too much. Like if a kid steals, he may be a hungry kid. You go home and there may be no food in his refrigerator. <laughs> and if he's dirty, he might have parents who don't keep his clothes clean. And so he steals and he takes nice things from people. have nice things because he or she don't have those things and so once you get to realize where this child is coming from you could better understand why he's doing some of the things that they're doing
0: that is so true we really can't judge a book by its cover that's why we say you have to take the time out to listen and it does take a village so if we have resources established for our youth, then they have somewhere to go, maybe even to feel safe, uh, maybe be able to talk to someone. So that is so key. Sergeant Brisby, do you have any words?
1: I think, um, like, years ago I had, I started um, doing the Lunch Buddy program, you know, with kids in elementary school. Um, Started those relationships there. And and it it turned out that I ended up fostering one of my, lunch buddy, one of my D.A.R.E. students, and he's right, you don't know, but if you build those relationships and they feel that they can trust you, you know, if there's something that's going on in the home, you know, then right. they have your number and they can call you, or, and, and maybe it's not a, a police officer, maybe it's an educator or um, a clergy person or something, you know, but it is important to build those relationships, make them feel comfortable enough to communicate those things um, to you.
0: So true. Well, thank you both again. It has been an honor and a privilege to talk with you today. I don't feel like this will be our last time talking, paving the way for minorities in law enforcement. Thank you for being with me today, and it was wonderful having you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And this is Jessica Brown, the DEI Perspective.